0: This week's show. First off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And today's guest, I've got Dr. Brett McCabe. He's the founder of The Mind Side and has been a practicing sport and performance psychologist and a licensed clinical psychologist since 2007. He presently works with numerous players from the PGA and LPGA tours, development tours, and serves as the sport and performance psych- psychologist for the University of Alabama's athletic department as well as an NBA team. Thanks, Brett, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. But we talked briefly off-air about a few topics. Uh, can you tell the guys listening and obviously watching on the on YouTube how you? came about becoming a sport, a sports psychologist in the first place.
1: Yeah, I was an athlete in college. I played baseball at Louisiana State University, and our program was um, the team of the decade of the 90s. We won five national titles in 10 years, and it was through my own challenges. Um, I, I, I struggled with an injury, and I struggled being completely aggressive to what I wanted to accomplish. Um, and what happened was... Um, I was very, I was, I was struggled with success. I was good at failing, but I wasn't good at success. Um, And I, um, I really needed to learn how to overcome it. So I went and saw a guy who taught me how to work through it. And I had a lot of success. And And so I decided after that season um, that I was going to go into psychology. So I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a specialist in, in the interplay between medical and psychological symptomatology Um, but all I do is work with athletes now. So one of the, one of the things that I'm a specialist in is injury rehabilitation, um, and getting athletes back to the field a little quicker.
0: Okay. That's quite interesting. And obviously working with different sports, obviously you say with injuries, obviously there's different ones that can come about obviously between, uh, say for example, Football injuries are going to differentiate between that of golf injuries, and how how does kind of the psychological mindset of the players differentiate between
1: the sports? Well, you know, some some sports like football, um, you tend to we tend to romanticize the warrior esque mentality. You know, take me up, run me back out there. Uh, other sports tend to be more um, needing to feel just about right in order to compete at the highest level, like sprinters. Um, and and rightfully so. I mean, if there's a twinge in the hamstring, it tends to be a little bit of a concern. Um, The psychological aspect of injury, though, is understanding that there's a process to recovery as much there is in the physical process. Um, One of the things that we do as athletes is we anchor, meaning we identify a time in our life when we can't do something as the time that we were the best at doing it. So we look back to three or four years ago and say, but I, I used to have no pain. I had no limitations as you and I were saying before we came and started recording, is that many times our limitations become our blessings. But we identify them as as a rate-limiting factor or as a problem versus looking at them and saying, okay, what can I learn during this time? What can I learn about me? And so for all athletes that are going through injury, one of the biggest challenges is understanding their role and their value. Because as an athlete, we, we identify as the positive aspects of an athlete. People know you, they watch you, you're physically fit, you feel good about yourself, but now we have this injury and those those factors are now rattled. And so how do we put that back together? And that's the challenge, that's the challenge. I mean, look, it's, it's not much different than, you know, if we take a short-term disability or a long-term disability, it still becomes, for most folks, it still becomes in their forefront of their ideals and their presentations. Um, it, it's always on us, it's always around us, we're always aware of it. So you know you take an athlete who's now who's never had a knee injury and can run and walk without thinking now all of a sudden has a torn a c l and is fully limited for the next x amount of weeks um now to go to the bathroom is a chore well, if you take individuals as like my dad who was who had physical limitations the last ten years of his life to go upstairs at our house um he we had six stairs to go into our house. I felt so guilty for so long because. It was hard for him. If we needed to go run an errand, we had to really think about how we were going to do it because getting up and down those steps every single day was a challenge. Um, and it would wear him out to get in the house. Um, and so for athletes, it's a short-term disability, but it has long-term fear associated with it. Is this the new normal versus, all right, this is another challenge. I'm going to overcome it.
0: Okay. And I've got one question from one of my followers, uh, Chris that. He was asking, uh, "What's your opinion on the ten thousand rule, and do you agree with the same?"
1: Um, you know, so the ten thousand hour rule was started um, and it was based on some research by Anders, uh, Anders Erickson, who just recently wrote a book called Peak. And if you haven't read Peak, it's called—I've got it on my bookshelf—Science of the New: Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. He'll even tell you that this ten thousand hour rule has been a little bit bastardized, um, oversimplified. Look. We can't argue with the fact that certain people are just more talented than others. Their ability to take whatever skill they do, whether it's throwing a baseball or catching a football or jumping, but those skills have to also be refined, so it's the ultimate nature and nurture approach. I think what we need to learn from the 10,000-hour rule is that there's a deliberate way to train, and if we follow the deliberate way to train, we increase the probability of our success, We don't increase success. We increase the probability of success because there ultimately still comes an it factor, which might be our own talent, our belief systems, something to get better. Simply doing something over and over again. Most of the studies in the 10,000 hour rules that supported it were retrospective studies. They identified a group of prodigies or people who have already achieved success and then studied them to try to find answers. So it's a little bit of a selection bias. Every other study where we've tried to look at it you know, where we hyper train people. It hasn't produced anybody. Um, if you look at the Chinese Olympians, they have long-standing uh, Olympic development programs that would probably adhere to the 10,000 hour rule. But what they have is a lot of um, attrition. They go through and call the herd constantly to try to find the diamond. So what are they looking for? Somebody who has this innate ability, this underlying ability to be successful. Um, so, I think the 10,000 hour rule we have to look back at and, and Anders Erickson would tell you we have to accept the fact that there has to be purposeful practice in that moment
0: Okay, and then what, one comment he goes on to, to ask um, in the past there's been experiments with which have produced sportsmen like for example the Polgart sisters, uh, chess champions do you think uh, the same should be done with tomorrow's sportsmen and women?
1: Uh. uh mm. No, because it's a win at all cost mentality, right? So if we look at the sisters that you're referring to in chess, um, it became all-consuming. It was a lot of other stuff came at that risk for them to be successful as chess champions. Um, if you now, if you look at let's say let's look at Venus and Serena Williams, okay? Serena is probably the greatest female tennis player, maybe one of the greatest tennis players of all time. I think she's up for debate for that as maybe the most dominant tennis player of all time. But she was raised with an idea from her family that they were going to be professional tennis players. How many, um, um, how many people have come up in that same boat and have not been successful and have nothing to show for it? There's a lot of those. But we just don't hear about them. So I think we have to be careful. We have to train our kids um, to, to be well-rounded. Because at the same time, early specialization is effective. Okay, it works. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't produce well-rounded individuals that are always successful down the road. So I think um, cross-specialization or cross-exposure to other sports is very important. Um, so what happens to me is if we, if we take that and we put them in a singular approach, what happens is we tend to ignore the other benefits that we really need to have for development.
0: It's definitely something I agree with. Obviously, the cross-sports cross, cross sports one, obviously, it's probably something you'd attest to, as well as myself, when you were younger.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm trying to think how many sports... Over, the, over my lifetime, I've ended up doing uh, three sports at national level and about six sports throughout my lifetime. So, obviously, as a youngster... Uh, when they cross overlapped, I think I did temping bowling and uh, karate and swimming, and they kind of overlapped. So it kind of, I've not dove solely into one sport until I probably got to about 16. And obviously, by that yeah. time, I've kind of progressed up the ranks. And then that's well, when you have well, to specialize.
1: You have to specialize at that point. It, it's interesting here in in high schools in the United States. Um, particularly because of the draw of football, a lot of high schools are, will silo and, and, and select kids to play only football. Well, what happens is the other sports, the really, really good athletes that could maybe play college in other sports like baseball or track or soccer, lacrosse, are playing football, and, and they kind of get shamed into playing football. The problem is they're not good enough to play college football. So by making them specialize too early, we're losing the development in other sports. Back you know, when our, when our dads were of age, it wasn't uncommon in high school to have a three- and four-sport letterman. Now, it's very rare to see a kid play multiple sports in high school, More, also in college. I mean, you never see a multiple-sport athlete in college. Um, but I think we might be missing that because there's no reason why a kid can't play football and baseball. Maybe football and basketball. Because they, they may not be able to keep the weight on because they're running up and down the court, but there's a lot of skills that they learn in that setting to help them be successful. I think as parents and as coaches, we have to encourage folks. I would even do things at practice where you bring in another sport. So if you're if you're playing soccer um, or football, you know in the UK, um, bring in volleyball one day and train. You know, take a practice at the end of practice and play volleyball. And, and just call it a fun day, but watch the development and the ability to work as teammates. And Is the superstar on the pitch going to be the same superstar on the court? And how are they going to deal with that? And there's, there's a good aspect to that. And, and I think we have to learn. Some of it's requiring humility, but it's also learning self-mastery. Because you know, the way that we used to learn how to learn a sport, the way we used to grow to learn to, a sport was through self-mastery and self-identification, through trial and error of ourself working on it. Now we have coaches that say, oh, no, 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 you're in the wrong position. You need to do it exactly like this. So the athlete loses that, self, that self-development um, and, and trial and error that comes with just trying things out. I learned to pitch throwing into a, a uh, packing crate on the side of my house. And my dad was a college baseball catcher. He knew what he was doing, but his thing was go out there and figure it out.
0: Well, it comes down to obviously like you say with baseball pitching it's um it comes down to the what's the word I'm looking for? Uh obviously each pitcher has their own way of pitching to suit their uh, there we go. Bi- the, the biomechanics of the movement is everybody obviously if you look uh pitchers side by side, say at the uh, major league baseball level, they're not gonna they're not all gonna have the same technique. So, it's finding a technique that works for you to get the best out of yourself.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. But, look, if we look at the most valuable resources in the world, like a diamond, it takes pressure, intensity, and heat to to create that diamond. We cannot keep continuing to create athletes, whereas we were saying before we went on the air... um, that they're not vulnerable to the outcomes. They've got to be vulnerable. They've got to, um, um, you know, they've got to learn that failure is an option. Okay. Failure always must be an option because if it's not, what are we going to really fight for? But what happens is we've got to learn how to look at failure and realize that success is more important to us. Well, it's the it's, only way we can learn that is to face failure.
0: Well, it's it's probably what we've gone away from now in this day and age is obviously using a uh, looking at success and putting it on a pedestal as opposed to using failure as a tool to i don't know as a, something you use in psychological terminology as in like reflective practice it's looking on okay, I may have done this wrong, but and breaking it down and looking well where can I improve that to get to success.
1: hmm Well, nobody wants failure, right? Nobody wants, nobody wants to experience disappointment. But the only choice we have afterwards is we allow, either we allow it to become our essence or we allow it to become our motivation. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to walk around thinking that I failed at things. So if I failed at something, I'm going to learn from it. Um, and I want to figure out the best way to get better the fastest way that I can. And the only way that I'm going to get better is I'm going to take that challenge again and I'm going to beat it. You know, you can tell me all day long that I did a good job, but if I know I didn't succeed, all I want is another opportunity. Now, sometimes in life, we don't get that other opportunity, and that's disappointing. But the truth is, we have to have that opportunity. If not, we have to find something to challenge ourselves. If not, then we regress. We become comfortable in our environment. Even the most painful environments that we're in sometimes can become predictably comfortable. Doesn't mean we enjoy it, it just means there's predictability in it. Okay. And once we and once we get to predictability, we, we kinda of have stability, which is very important for the human mind. That doesn't mean it's good, but that's why sometimes people um, um, that's why people, you know, get caught up in um, um, bad relationships and they stay there.
0: And it's something we touched upon a little bit briefly off air. Uh, obviously, I brought up the the thing with the British government and uh, bringing in, uh, making sport more about participation at elementary level. Why, obviously, you touched upon it off air a little bit. Why is it such a bad thing that the kids are looking at sport from a more uh, particip- participation way instead of making sport about which in terms is you could associate to life about competition. Well, f-
1: well, first every kid I've ever been around in a participation environment knows the score of the game they're competing in, and so do their parents. So we can pretend that nobody cares. Everybody cares. Life is about competition. Life is not about complacency. You know, it, it, those who are complacent get eaten. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just survival of the fittest. You're going to get bypassed. Um, the challenge is for participation. Yes. There's a point where, we go too far when it comes to success and failure. We, we have to look at the human development aspect of things. Participation in its own is not development. Coaching, leadership, growing skill sets, that's development. So we have to sometimes temper our desire to succeed by making sure that other kids on our team who are not the superstars can develop because they may become superstars. They just have not had the attention. But simply getting a ribbon because you participated isn't coaching either. That's just giving a ribbon because they participated. So the biggest failure of coaches in our society is we don't have individualized developmental plans for every player on our teams. Why wouldn't we? And we should have every player that we coach should have a developmental plan. If Brett is on your team and he's not going to play a lot this year, have you communicated that to me? I hope you would. And I would hope you tell me what I need to do and what I need to learn from this year and what my role is. Without that, then you're leaving me to guess, which causes me to quit. So when we become so focused on success, we tend to forget the development. We get so focused on participation, we forget to actually coach people. You know, rolling a ball out there and helping them find it on themselves is good when it's in the backyard, but not in an organized event.
0: That's, that's definitely a good point. This is, something you kind of brought it out to. Obviously, looking at it from a, a grander scheme, then obviously it's not about participation. Is a deeper root to
1: obviously it's development. It's development. I mean, look, how do we gain mastery? We gain mastery by going through things that are good and things that are bad and learning how to identify our pathway to achieve success. So if you're not very good on the pitch and you just get a participation trophy for playing, they failed you. They failed you. They need to spend some time. Now, you might just not be very good. I mean, you might be terrible. Okay, But then my job as a coach is to get you into something that you're good at. Okay, and it might be a certain position that we can you can get away with your deficiencies a little bit. All right? But if I'm not coaching you up, how are you supposed to find it? Just luck? We have to have a developmental plan for everybody. If we just assume that, you know, unfortunately, if we get a team of nothing but great players, um what happens there is then, you know, we people improve together, but the the real issue is that the The players that are waiting to be developed who probably are more physically delayed, particularly happens in men's sports, they get lost. They get lost.
0: Which in turn probably they end up leaving the sport altogether.
1: 100% because it's not fun. It's not fun. I played one year of varsity baseball in high school because I wasn't good enough to play varsity. In the United States, you usually play varsity your junior senior year. They held me back Athletically, not academically, but athletically, because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't big enough. I grew late. I was the youngest kid in my class, and I didn't grow until I was a senior. Then all of a sudden, I went on to play college baseball, and everyone was like, where would this kid come from? The fact was, I should have probably been held back a year, but academically, I was fine. I had no problems performing. And How did my parents know when they started me in kin- They were just putting me in kindergarten early because they wanted me out of the house. They had no idea eighteen or fifteen years later that I needed to be held back, but but in today's world that's not uncommon. Okay, so you know they'll hold a kid back to try to maximize, but then they get to college. Guess what? Well, I went to college. I redshirted, so I had to wait another year to play because I was the youngest kid on my team. But I played five years instead of four because I I was held back one year. But that's all the that's all that happens i mean so we have to look at our individual development plan, developmental plans for every single athlete we have if we don't have that we are failing as coaches in those organizations
0: that's definitely a good point you raised brett um i think we'll wrap it up there for today thanks for coming on the show absolutely um if anybody wanted to get in contact with you uh, to ask any further questions how what would the best how would how would they go about it and what would the big best form of social media to get to get asked such a question the,
1: the, the easiest way to get to us on social media is at the mind side, t-h-e-m-i-n-d-s-i-d-e you hit me up there i'll get back to you i'll probably get you from my personal account but our company is the Mindside.
0: side okay and once again thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show
1: absolutely thank you so much for having me
0: if you wanted some bonus content, I have now set up a Facebook group where you can interact with both the guests and I. The name of this so-called group is Mindset Game, so why not come over and check it out for yourself. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review in iTunes, as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in the future to others, and thus helping more people which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.